Thank you, worship team. I'd like to read to you from the account of Matthew, who was a follower of Jesus. One of the disciples of Jesus. He wrote in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven. And going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. It's a great story, isn't it? It's a great story. And now, is it true? Is it true? It's a great story. It's an incredible story of someone named Jesus, who Matthew at least thinks was, died and came back to life again. story of angels. story of tombstones being rolled open and fear and anxiety and worry and wonder, and then Jesus appearing again. I mean, this is stuff that can make a movie, and the question is, is it actually true? Is it true? If you ask me, any question is fair to ask of Christianity, and do you know why? Because Christianity makes a big ask on all of its followers. Christianity asks its followers to give it everything. Christianity says, will you trust me with your entire life to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Everything that you have, Christianity asks for. So when there's an ask that big, there better be evidence or support that big to back it up. To put it in simple terms, if I told you I've replaced the fuel pump in my car all by myself, the laughter... Yeah, there's shaking of heads and there's laughter. You want to see the proof. Because that's a big ask of me to ask you to believe that what I just said is true. If I were to tell you I am God and if you were to kill me, I will come back to life in three days. You're going to say, I know you. That's not true. It's a big ask. And if you put out a big ask, you better have big support. For it. And this is why it's fair, it is fair and right to ask Christianity all the toughest questions you can possibly think of. Not to grow up in church assuming everything is true, but to pepper it with your questions because, in my opinion, it can handle it and you have to ask it. Is it really true? I mean really, really, really true that someone, the God-man, as Christians say, Jesus, came to this planet, died on the cross, was dead, was in a tomb, stone rolled over it, stone rolled away. He came back to life. And now he lives forever in a place 
where you and I can't see him, and you and I are being asked, will you give everything you have for that belief? That is a big, big ask. It is. This is a new series we're beginning called I've Been Thinking. First of four parts, and this morning we want to ask the question about thinking about the resurrection. Did it really, really happen? And for those of you who've grown up in church, you may have just assumed it did. You may never have really asked the hard question. You may even be 80 years old or 79 years old or 125 and still sitting here. I don't know. Maybe you're 30 or 40 or 50 or maybe you're just 20 or whatever. And you've grown up in church all your life and you've just assumed it's true because your parents said it or your uncle and aunt said it or your grandparents believed it. But you've always wondered in the back of your mind, is it actually really, really true? I mean, we sing the songs and it feels good to do that. And, you know, the guy up there, he can talk, okay, now and then, that's all right too. And it's only an hour of my morning, you know, and then I'm free to go. But is this really, really, really true? As true as your Easter lunch will be, as true as the next meal will be for you, is it really true? Some of you this morning are here and you're just investigating again. Maybe you were brought here by a family member, by a friend. Because, you know, it's Easter, you're being polite. In fact, it would be worse to say no because the fallout in your family would be worse than if you didn't come this morning, so you'll take the lesser of two evils and you'll hang out with us for a little bit, which is fine. Listen to me, I'm not dogging that at all. That is fine. We are glad to have you, truthfully, truthfully. I want you to know that. We're glad to have you. But somewhere along the line, you said, I don't believe this. Like, this isn't for me. This is for mom and dad. This is for my siblings, but it's just not for me. Like, there's too much whatever in the church. There's too much question about it. I don't get it. It's not for me. I I get that. I get that. You've asked questions and you've not been able to answer them about Christianity. I get that. This morning, we're going to ask and try to answer one question. Did the resurrection really happen? Is the story that I just read from Matthew just a fable? Is it just... uh, the ramblings of a disciple who made something up and began, wanted to create a movement on his own, or did this actually happen? So this morning, um, I'd like to dive right into that, and I want to get into this with two assumptions. There's so much on this issue, and I just want to do it this way with you. I want to go on two assumptions this morning. My first assumption is this. I can't I don't have time to convince anybody of anything, really. I just want to present to you why I come down where I do. My first assumption is going to be this, that the New Testament is actually reliable history. We're going to have to assume that, and here's what I want to say on this, that as I talk to you this morning, if you come and you are a skeptic, okay, you don't believe, or you're not sure and you actually really, really, really want to know, I believe that the New Testament documents are historical. They at least... They at least represent history. Now let's just, for argument's sake, take away the supernatural. Let's just say we could do that. Let me just give you what if these documents do not make a claim on your life and they're like reading the newspaper about what happened yesterday or the days gone by. That I believe even at that level that what we read in the Bible is accurate history. And in fact, I believe it's the most well-attested historical documents of ancient ancient history that we have. Did you know that there are 5,664 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament? If you take all of the languages together, Latin, um, Ethiopic language, um, all the Greek language, Latin, I think I mentioned that, we have all the early languages of the various manuscripts of the New Testament, we have a total of 24, over 24,000 24, witnesses, manuscripts, of what happened in the New Testament time. 
Now, that may, may not mean much to you, but put this in perspective. The second place document, okay? The ancient historical piece that runs second is Homer's Iliad, which has 640 manuscripts. We believe that that actually was written by Homer. You go all the way back to Plato and Aristotle. They have documents that are only in the 10s, 20s, even 150 or so. We're looking at documents that totally outweigh any second ancient historical piece. So the amount of manuscripts, the amount of history that we have about the New Testament documents, to me, even if I'll give you, let's just say that you think, I'm not sure they're supernatural, okay, but they're historical. I'm going to go on that assumption this morning, they're historical. Secondly, that Jesus is actually a historical figure. That he's a historical figure. Again, if you don't want to give him the supernatural piece, that's okay, we can still have the conversation. That Jesus actually is a historical figure. Attested to outside of Christianity. Attested to outside of people who were sympathetic to his cause. Josephus, the Jewish historian, not Christian historian, those are different things, the Jewish historian, who was not attested Christian, wrote about Jesus. The Jewish Talmud around 500 AD, a compilation of various documents, began in 200, wrote about Jesus and that he existed, that he walked the planet. Tacitus was a Roman historian. He wrote about the historical figure of Jesus. Pliny the Younger was a Roman governor and wrote about Jesus' interactions within the towns in which he interacted with. In fact, if we had no New Testament or Bible stuff about Jesus, here's what we could piece together about Jesus from people who were not sympathetic to his cause, who may not even have believed that he was the Messiah and were not interested in pushing that agenda. Here's what we could piece together. That he was a Jewish teacher, that many people believed that he performed healings and exorcisms, that some believed that he was the Messiah, that he was rejected by Jewish leaders, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius, and despite his shameful death, his followers, who believed he was still alive, spread beyond Palestine, so there were multitudes of them in Rome by A.D. 64, and that people of all shapes and sizes, all different strands of belief and countryside in the city, believed in him as the Messiah, slave and free, they worshipped him as God. That we can piece together from accounts outside of Christianity people who were not sympathetic to the cause. So my assumptions will be this morning that I can trust the New Testament at a base level as history and that Jesus actually existed. And so then my question is, what do I do with him? And what do I do with the historical account of the resurrection? And what do I do with this man? How do I explain this? How do I explain this? Did the resurrection really, really happen? So there's four questions that I want to walk through with you briefly this morning. And I will acknowledge at the beginning... Um, if you want more help with this and more interaction with this, I can't recommend highly enough a little book that Lee Strobel or Strobel wrote called The Case for Christ. He was very helpful even in my shaping of this message this morning. First question is this. Did Jesus really die? In order to prove that he was resurrected, we have to actually make the case that he actually physically died. You, right, you can't come back to life unless you first were dead. Okay? Did Jesus really die? Or is it possible that he survived the cross somehow and therefore was simply resuscitated? Number two, is the tomb really empty and how do we know? Or is this just a myth that was passed on from generation to generation to generation and people wanted to believe that the tomb was empty, but can we actually know that the tomb is empty, empty? Number three, did he really appear after death? Or again, is this just followers making it up truthfully and saying, hey, they're creating legend now that he actually appeared? And fourthly, what changed historically? In other words, if this kind of an event happened, it would be so big, it would be so massive, you cannot drop a, a rock like this into the pond of history and have no ripples come out. 
You cannot have something like 9-11 happen and have it not change our entire country, if not ripple out to our world economy. You cannot have a major historical event without major ripples coming through. It's just not possible. So what happened? What changed historically? Okay. So first of all, let's talk about this. Did Jesus really die? A guy by the name of Dr. Alexander Methra was a medical doctor. And you need to know this, that there are two major theories, in fact, one major one that is presented for alternatives to Jesus' resurrection. The first one is presented in the Quran. You may or may not know that the Quran claims that Jesus didn't die. The Muslims say that he went to India. All right? Not all will believe that, but that is there in the Quran. Secondly, there's another major theory called the swoon theory or the resuscitation theory, that Jesus was just beaten up badly on the cross, but he actually didn't die. This began in the 19th century, and throughout the next generations continued to come up over and over again in different kind of publications and different writings that, yeah, we're not really sure he actually died, died. And so, to try to address this, Dr. Alexander Metherell, a medical doctor, helps us understand what crucifixion would be like. Uh, this is a little, uh, it's a little direct in how he writes and speaks about this, but I'm just going to tell it like it is. Here's what he says. Roman floggings were known to be terribly brutal. And if you know what happened with Jesus, he was first of all beaten and then carried his own cross partway, and then the cross was carried for him as his strength failed. Then he was nailed to the cross and died on the cross. That's a Christian testimony. So Methuel writes this. Roman floggings were known to be terribly brutal. They usually consisted of 39 lashes, but frequently were a lot more than that depending on the mood of the soldier applying the blows. The soldier would use a whip of braided leather thongs with metal balls woven into them. When the whip would strike the flesh, these balls would cause deep bruises or contusions, which would break open with further blows. And the whip had sharp pieces of, uh, excuse me, had pieces of sharp bone as well, which would cut the flesh severely. The back would be so shredded that part of the spine was sometimes exposed by the deep, deep cuts. The whipping would have gone all the way from the shoulders down to the back, the buttocks, and the back of the legs. It was just terrible. One physician who studied Roman beatings said, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. A third century historian by the name of Eusebius described a flogging by saying, the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. And we know that many people would die from this kind of beating even before they were crucified. Even before they were crucified. Jesus was already in serious to critical condition before he even got to the cross. And then he gets to the cross and the Christian testimony is this, that his body was nailed to the beam and then put up to be hung. The way that would work is your body is laid down and you are stretched out on the horizontal beam and a, a nail five to seven inches long with a sharp point is driven into your, your wrist, not into the palm of your hand, but driven into your wrist. Dr. Methril explains it this way. He says the nail would have gone through the medial nerve, which... He said would provide uh, would create pain similar to taking pliers on your funny bone nerve that you've probably hit before, taking pliers on that, squeezing that nerve, and then crushing that nerve. 
He said it was so painful that they created a new word to describe that pain called excruciating pain, which literally means from the cross. The Greek preposition ex comes first. Cross, excruciating pain comes from this event of the nerve being crushed by the nail. You're you're laid out like that, and then that horizontal beam is brought up and placed into the vertical beam that's in the ground. In the process of getting dropped into or into that position, you would be um, your arms would be stretched out up to six inches further than they should be. Your both of your shoulders would be dislocated. You wouldn't have that ability to move them anymore. And the cause of death would be asphyxiation. You couldn't breathe ultimately as the blood filled your lungs. And then the nails were driven through your feet, causing the same kind of nerve pain that was happened with the wrists as well. Roman soldiers did this as a business. This was their job to kill people on the cross. And the question is, did Jesus really die? Did Jesus really die, or was this man resuscitated? Dr. Methuel says there's no one who survives the cross. There's no one who survives the crucifixion. There's no way that Roman soldiers, whose job it is is to kill people, allow people to walk away from the cross, because if they do, they're dead. Their job depends on it. Their life depends on it. But even if, Methra was pressed on this, even if there was a miracle, that of all the people in the world have been crucified, Jesus somehow survived. Is it possible that he survived? Methra says no. But Methuel says, if you want to go there and play that hypothetical game, which is not possible, no one survives the cross, especially after the Roman soldiers thrust a spear into your heart and the blood and water flow from it. If you want to think that he's still alive, okay, but think about this, he says. If Jesus resuscitates and shows himself to his disciples, imagine what condition he would be in. Imagine the beating his body took, and let me ask you, would that be an inspirational hope for you that someday your resurrected body would look like that as well? Would you be able to walk along the road to Emmaus with the disciples with feet that don't function anymore, with shoulders you can't even hold up anymore? He said, even if, which is not possible that Jesus survived, he is not an inspiration to anyone. No one builds a movement around the hope that someday we can look like that and be like that, that that's our end. It just doesn't happen. There's strong, strong medical evidence to suggest that when people are crucified, they die. They just die. The second question is this. Is the tomb really empty? Or do we just not know where it was? A real important piece of evidence for us to understand is this guy named Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. The normal protocol for deaths after the cross is to put people in mass graves. Oftentimes the dogs would eat the, the flesh. and It was just a nasty situation. Joseph of Arimathea, member of the Sanhedrin, who condemned Jesus to death, took Jesus' body and buried him in his own tomb. And the reason that that's important is all of a sudden, anyone can track that. When... Joseph is listed as the one who owns the tomb. It does not take long for anyone who lives in that time to go find Joseph and talk to him, to track down that tomb, not some mass burial grave somewhere, but a particular tomb owned by, of all people, a member of the Sanhedrin. It would be a little more questionable if it was a disciple who owned the tomb. Ah, Then there might be some shady business. But a member of the Sanhedrin, is the tomb really empty? 
tomb security. The tomb had a, a slanted groove, which is often pictured in standard tomb pictures, that led down to a low entrance and a large stone was rolled uh, down in front of it and then another small stone was set there to secure it. It's easy to move down, but very difficult to move up. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see some guards were present there. There's some question as to whether guards were really there because the other two Gospel accounts do not have the guards. But you should know this. Here's how the conversation went in the early church, um, even before the church really formulated between Jews and Christians. The Jews would say, he didn't actually come to life. The disciples stole his body. And the Christians would say, well, the disciples couldn't steal the body because there were guards there. And then the Jews would say, well, the guards fell asleep. And the Christians would say, you guys paid them to say that they fell asleep. But the conversation never went, the argument never went, we have no documentation of the Jews ever saying, no, there weren't guards there. They simply talked about, why did the guards not do their job? Why did the guards not do their job? This creed I read to you earlier to begin the service it was written in 32 to 38 A.D., only two to eight years from the resurrection. It was written so early that there's no time for legend to creep in or mythical pieces of this to, to come in. The other piece that's very amazing is that the gospel writers used women as their primary witnesses. Now, I'm not downing women here. I'm just saying that historically in this time period, women had very little voice in saying anything. They, they were not considered a viable witness in a court of law, and so their testimony didn't carry weight. And if you want to prove that the resurrection actually happened, you don't make the first people to go to the tomb be women. You make them be, be men who have a voice who can be heard. This is not the way that you would write it up if you're going to write up a script to make this happen. You also need to know that the earliest historical conversations about this was always this, what happened to the body? We have no, re no record of early historical conversations saying, the tomb still contains his body. The conversation always was, how do we explain that it's not there? Even people who were not Christian were trying to explain why it wasn't there, not saying, it's still there, just go there. Just go there. Okay. Now, this question, this third question. Did he appear? Did he really appear after death? Or are we just kind of making that up? Again, based on the assumption that the New Testament is a historical document. I believe it's more than that, but at least that it's historical. Here's what we see in the New Testament. That Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene in John 20, to other women in Matthew 28, to Cleopas and another disciple on the road to Emmaus, to 11 disciples and others, to 10 apostles and others with Thomas absent, then with Thomas present and the other apostles, with seven apostles, with the disciples, with the apostles at the Mount of Olives before his ascension, appearing to 500 in 1 Corinthians 15, and then throughout Acts, there's references to his appearing from Peter and Paul as they're giving their messages and speaking in the book of Acts. To put this in perspective, if you were to take all the people who witnessed Jesus' ascension, oh, excuse me, resurrection, and line them up and do a cross-examination of them in a court of law, if you started and you gave them each 15 minutes of a cross-examination of what they saw, and you lined up all your witnesses, you would start Monday morning at breakfast time, and you would not finish cross-examining witnesses if you went all day and all night without a break, 24-7. You would not finish until Friday evening. That's 129 hours of testimony that I saw Jesus, oh, I saw Jesus, I saw Jesus, I saw Jesus, I saw him, 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 on and on and on and on and on for 129 hours. So what would you think after 129 hours? 
Maybe somebody saw him. Like it's, it, maybe, maybe he actually appeared. It's, it's, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of testimony. Did he actually appear? Final question is this. What change in history is a result? Like I said, if something this big happens, it leaves ripples. You don't just drop something like this into history and have nothing change. You need to know, and you, many of you do know this, that the disciples died for their beliefs. The disciples whose character was a little questionable sometimes. They were weak, they were scared, they were afraid at times. All of a sudden, they changed, and they were willing to die for their beliefs. In fact, they were willing not just to die for their beliefs, but they died for what they saw. You see the difference? They didn't just die for a belief, they died for what they, they, died for what they saw. Something drastic changed for them. The other thing that changed, very significant to me, is the conversion of skeptics. I've mentioned this to you before, but let me ask you what it would take for you to convince your sibling that you are God. In John's Gospel, John chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, we have an account of, of Jesus' brothers not believing him that he was the Messiah. They were egging him on and they were saying, come on, come on, go up, go up to the feast and show everybody that you're a miracle worker. Show everybody that you're the, the Savior. That's what you would do if you're that person, right? You can do this, right? That's what you tell us. We lived with you, man. Come on. Go do it. Go do it. And the reason why they do it in, in John chapter 7 and verse 5 is we read this. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. I get it. I would not have believed my sister was God either. I just... She might have believed that. No, she probably wouldn't have believed I was God either. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. And yet, at the end of his life, and then after he died, his brother James became the leader of the Christian church and wrote the book of James that we have now. And his brother became convinced, this kid I grew up with, he's the Messiah. He's the Savior. That's a pretty significant shift. Saul or Paul the Apostle had the similar conversion experience. He went from persecuting, crucifying, killing people to becoming the the greatest missionary that we've ever had in Christianity. You also need to know this. Isn't it interesting that out of all the people groups that we have in in the Scriptures, the Jews are really the only ones who've continued to live? Have you thought about that? The Hittites, the Perizzites, the Ammonites, the Amorites... The Canaanites, you know, whateverites, you know, some joke that there's termites, you know, that are, that are there. But of all the ites that we have in the scriptures, you know that the Jews continue? Why is that? Isn't that strange? Pretty powerful? How does a national identity continue through all kinds of trouble and struggle? And here's what's so important to understand, because the Jews had a tight, tight, tight social structure that formed their national identity, and they did not give it up. They knew who they were, and they worshipped no matter what. They sacrificed no matter what. They kept their system of belief no matter what, which is what allowed them to persevere beyond all of the other people groups that are mentioned in the Scriptures. It's pretty significant, just for the Jews. Now, did you know, after Jesus, within five weeks of his death, there were over 10,000 Jews who have given up the social institutions that they've had for a lifetime, they've had for a generation. All of a sudden, these people are saying, we no longer need to sacrifice. All that has kept us Jewish from here on out, we no longer have to do. We no longer have to obey Moses' law. 
It is huge. We no longer have to become circumcised to become a Christian. These people changed their social institutions on this issue. They changed their worship from Saturday to Sunday. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what it would take for us to say, hey, thanks for coming here Sunday. Starting next week, we're going to Monday. And here's why. This is so profound. The day of worship changed from Saturday to Sunday. All of a sudden, why? There was this change in belief from a monotheistic God, one God, to all of a sudden this embracing of a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. These are significant social changes within the Jewish and then Judeo-Christian worldview. Massive changes for them. And then the development of communion and baptism are huge as well in this process. And finally, the final ripple that goes out of this historically is the emergence of the church. If you were dropped into this time period um, from a, a Martian spaceship and you were an alien landing on the planet at that time and you looked at the Roman Empire and then you looked at this fledgling little church. And I were to ask you this question. Which of these will survive in a thousand years? Which of these will grow? Which of these is stronger? There's no question. Unless you're a fool, you'd say the Roman Empire. Who would bet against that? And isn't it amazing that now we name our children Paul and Peter, and our dogs, Nero and Caesar. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? That this emergence of the church compared to the Roman Empire is so unusual and so unexpected. What in the world is going on historically? How in the world does something like this happen? In my opinion, it is hard to find, it is difficult to find an event more attested to in ancient history than the resurrection of Jesus. It is difficult to find an event attested to, more attested to in, in ancient history than the resurrection of Jesus. The evidence tells us people who are crucified die. They die. And they die one of the worst that's you can imagine. It is one job on that cross to kill that man. And that's what they did. The evidence tells us we can find the tomb, and no one argued about whether the tomb was empty or not. Even people who were against Christianity, the argument was, where's the body? 129 hours of testimony from live witnesses saying he was seen, 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 over and over and over and over and over again going all the way back to 32 to 38 A.D., where there's no time for legend to develop yet, you can still check with the source to see if it's true, that people are still alive. You can still argue it and get an answer. And then the ripple effect of an event like this throughout history is profound. It's profound. Did the resurrection really happen? Did this person, Jesus, really come and die on that cross? Be buried. Is the story that I read at the beginning from Matthew really, really true? Is it really, really true? Is it not just a good Bible story? Is it not just safe for kids? But is it actually true? Because if it is, it makes a big ask on you. It makes a big ask on me. It makes a huge ask 
to say, come and trust me. Because knowing the truth is not the same as responding or interacting to the truth. I want to tell you the story just for a minute of a young man about 45 years ago who made a decision to go into the military. He was a, an average man by any measurement. Kind enough, polite enough, and yet had his own demons like we all do. Stuff in the past that we wish was different. He lived a fast lifestyle. He could cover that fairly well and was fairly well, uh, you know, uh, well situated for life, but nothing outstanding. No college scholarships, no people pining for his interest or his future. In fact, he came from a, a home which was uh, what we would call dysfunctional today. He was born out of a traditional marriage. His, uh, his mom had an affair with some man who still is unknown to this day. and She was kicked out of her home, and so he grew up in a home with his mom taking care of her and married her mom. His mom married another man who had some issues of his own. And the home that he grew up in was nothing to write home about. In fact, his mom was a chain smoker, stayed in her bathrobe most every day, and actually caught the house on fire two times, believe it or not. This kid uh, grew up without having a birthday celebration or a birthday party because it was too dysfunctional in his home. His dad's great grand vision for his life was that he join um, his business with him and that they be in business forever together. Mid-twenties, this man had a different idea and kind of angry with the unknowns of his life and the struggles of his life, he made a decision to go off to the military. And he joined the armed forces about 45 years ago. And when he did that, he did not know what was to come. And when he was shipped off, when he was shipped off in the Navy, he ended up meeting a man who was a Christian. And this man told him about Jesus. He told him about the evidences for Jesus. He told him about the reasons why Jesus is real and why it's worth putting your faith in him. And about 45 years ago, this man made what seemed to be a subtle decision, a small move within the scope of history that otherwise would be totally unaccounted for unless I was telling it to you right now. And he made the decision while in Okinawa that he's going to trust in this God-man, Jesus Christ. A moment in time, a flash of history, come and gone. Except for this. That that man, that man, that man is my father. And that moment in time has changed an entire generation. An entire generation. That if, if you were to look at his life, 
when he was a teenager, and you were to say, here's what your children will look like one day. Here's what your grandchildren will be like. Here's the faith that they will pass on and they will want to give to people. You would say, I don't see that in his future. But I'm telling you this, you do not understand the significance of a decision that you will make in a moment of time and its impact on the generations to come. And this morning as you sit here and listen to this testimony about a man named Jesus, and you're trying to process, am I all in or not? And it may seem subtle to you, but I am telling you that this may be that moment in time for you that will change an entire generation of people because of what you are about to do. The decisions that we make that seem so daily and small have an incredible power to lead in great directions. This morning it is not just about can I pile up enough evidence about Jesus. It is this. What is your response? What is your move? How do you respond? to this evidence of the person of Jesus and to His offer to take the pain and the penalty of the cross to die in your place and mine and then to be resurrected on the third day to break the power of sin and death. As one historian said, there is a hole in history the size of the resurrection. And it's the only thing that fits with what we know. So this morning, as you're here and you're listening, let me encourage you, do not let this moment go by. You do not know what hangs in the balance of history this morning. You do not know what hangs in the balance of the future with the decisions that you can make this morning. That this God-man Jesus, I believe, really came and really died for you and for me. And that placing a faith and trust in Him can have an incredible, incredible, profound, far-reaching impact that you may never imagine possible. It is my hope for you on this Easter, when you hear He is risen, and He is risen indeed, that you can say, He is risen indeed. And nothing else explains it. He is risen indeed. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this incredible, incredible event in the history of humanity that ripples throughout time, that impacts us today, that Jesus, the historical Jesus, the God-man Jesus, came to earth 
lived, died, was buried, was resurrected on the third day, and appeared to Peter, to the twelve, to five hundred brothers at the same time. There is a hole in history that cannot be plugged or filled with anything but this. So Father, I pray for us this morning, those of us wrestling with whether we really believe this is true, those of us who are playing around the edges of Christianity, who may be coming to church for a while and just not fully in, fully engaged, fully whatever, that this morning you may help us see what hangs in the balance of our decisions. The people we can influence, the generations that will follow, the influence that you give us. Father, help us not to miss this chance to respond through faith to your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you that he didn't just stay in that grave, but he came up from that grave. He arose. And it's not just a song to sing. It is not just emotions to get stirred up. It is not just an environment to create or a feeling to capture, to feel good about ourselves. It is the truth of history that we can line up to and say there's no other ancient historical event more well attested to than this. That up from that grave he arose and in so doing he beat the power of death. Give us the courage, Father, this morning to do what we know we need to do with what we have just heard. And we'll pray this in Jesus' name.